Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and my guest today, director Lee Isaac Chung, talking about his new film, Minare. And we did something different on this podcast, and it was a lot of fun. I think we're going to do it again. <laughs> Isaac and I talk uh, for about 25 minutes here about the stuff that we normally talk to a director about, craft and process. And then the second half of the podcast, Isaac and I welcomed in his composer on this film, Emil Masare. And uh, they got to talk about their collaboration and the use of music in this film, which, you know, something I really wanted to dig into because having come off Sundance, where this film played the year before, you know, so many small, intimate films get score wrong. And it's hard. It's hard to find that balance or where to use score in a quiet, intimate film. And uh, this film gets it so right. Incredible collaboration between Emil and Isaac. So it was great to be able to dig into that. So uh, that's the uh, second half of the podcast. And it's a format that I thought worked really well. Let me know if you think so too, because I think we might do it again. You know, obviously this is a personal story. Um, a lot of a lot of memories. I, I saw you somewhere. You said talking about taking, writing down 80 memories uh, from your yeah, own life. Right. And, and using it. In that sense that you're going back to, to a childhood memory, I'm wondering that sense of remembering and and your own remembrance, how that impacts the story. I don't know if that's an odd question, but it's like I feel like it's different than if it was the retelling of an event of something that happened 10 years ago and and how that kind of impacts you as a personal storyteller here. Well, I I think that's a good question because I, I do feel like that act of remembering there is a distance that is is made between um, what you see on the screen and uh, the person who is kind of behind the story and, and writing the story. Um, for instance, I, I don't think a, a sort of realist approach to this film really would have worked because it is an act of, of remembrance. So I tried to dig into that when, when it came to the production and the writing of this script that I, I thought it needed to take on the feeling of a fable or um, some kind of classic story. And I felt like that's directly attributed to the fact that it is starting with memory as a starting point. Um, it's not meant to follow the present moment and to mine, you know, things that are happening and catch, catch things that are happening as they arise, but it's really trying to capture a feeling of something that has already happened. I'm curious, I, you know, I have, I have two small children as as well. I know you have, it, it, I saw, I don't know how many children you have, but I did see that there was an element of, uh, when yeah, your daughter was born, yeah. yeah. When your daughter was born, there was an element of, um, and I believe your daughter's rough was roughly the same age as the boy. That's right. You know, um, and it was clearly your own your own viewpoint. And it's interesting when when I had kids, it's really hard to explain. There is this element of seeing your own childhood so differently. You know, even seeing yeah. my parents differently, and That's right. and thinking back on it. And I'm curious about that because it seems to have been a trigger. I'm sure there was a lot of triggers to, to going back and telling the story, but I'm curious about mm -hmm. that because not only is it, uh, I do on a personal level understand that element of, of seeing the past differently in your own childhood differently, but it also seems to be something that maybe unlocked a certain element in terms of the point of view of the film and how you wanted to enter the, as an entry point into a story, no? Um, yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I've, I've always admired Yasujiro Ozu as a filmmaker. And I'm, I'm so surprised when I read about him and I, I found out that he didn't really have any kids 
and uh, he didn't get married. Um, and so he really didn't have that sort of family of his own that he's drawing experiences from. Um, and I admire him because I'm kind of the opposite of that. I needed to go through having kids uh, to shock my senses in a way and to get out of my own head, out of my own skin and, and to start to see from other perspectives more. Um, and the, the act of writing this film kind of came out of that natural process I think that happens um, for people like me who are so lost in their own minds that mm -hmm. they have to be shocked into seeing that you know everybody else has their own perspective and they have their own reality um, and, and that's the way I wanted to write this film really that we we follow everybody in some way or another even if it starts with this child as the perspective it, it's still very much um, there, there are objective moments in this story where yeah. you're just seeing these people. And maybe that's the little boy seeing them in those moments, or, or it's just really being with those characters. I'm not sure. But uh, me as a writer, I felt like I, I was able to be with them a little more now that I was a dad. And Yeah. It also feels like maybe even just as a storytelling device, I, I don't want to give the, for people that haven't seen the movie, I don't want to give the illusion that this is like E.T. and everything, the camera's, you know, three feet <laughs> off the ground. And, you know, it, it's it's the child's point of view here. But I, it does feel like possibly even, um, I don't know if the word's ensemble, but it feels like that idea of, because one could imagine telling this story and adapting an adult's point of view, you know, seeing, you know, we are very aware of, of the emotions and the, and the, where the two parents are coming from, but it feels like from a storytelling standpoint, it allows a certain, uh, I don't want to say objectivity or distant, but it allows you to kind of move a little bit around and be with everybody in that, in that sense, almost a little bit like Ozu to a certain degree um, in, in, in the way to approach the, the family story. Right. I, I was hoping so. I was hoping to do all those things. Um, and at the same time, the, the anchor of the child was always important because um, even during the editing process, we found that if we went away from his perspective too long, then the story started to feel too self-serious in a way. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also it was easier to judge the characters in a harsh way. But when you're really looking at a story, looking at individuals, from the vantage point of childhood, then there tends to be more grace that you're giving to people uh, from that childlike perspective. Um, and so in, in that way, that is always the anchor in this story. But I, I definitely wanted it not to feel like his limiting subjective experience, but um, something that's more expansive, that we're really with all these characters, all as who they are as an audience. Um, but this child is somehow the the one who's telling us uh, how to enter, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. I'm curious, um, removed from the movie for a second, did your, did that landscape, did this place kind of look like, uh, you know, it, 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 obviously this is drawn from your personal perspective, but I'm curious like what that place looks like in your head, that place where you were, you know, that, 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 that <laughs> Arkansas plot in law, because I, I think it might be interesting because I feel like this film is a little bit of, 
obviously there are these real life things. This is a, something that happened. There is a sense of wanting to be realistic in that sense, but there is this reverence. There is, you use the word fairy tale. And it, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like that does apply to the visual world of this. So it's funny. I, I, I don't know why that's a weird question to ask. I've never asked a filmmaker that, but it's like, what did it really look like? And what does it look like <laughs> in your head? Because I'm curious how, you know, you then went and, and created the frame of how we see it. Cause it's, a, it's, a, that I eventually want to talk about that. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting, beautiful film and how it looks. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, as a kid, I remember the land feeling magical and, uh, there were also snakes there. So that was from real life mm-hmm. that, uh, there are snakes in this film and there were many different kind of regions. If I don't know if regions is the right word, there are many different types of, uh, environments within that property itself. We had some woods, we had overgrown fields, we had croplands. Um, and always in the background, there were mountains because we live in the Ozark Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say in this film, you don't see as many mountains because we were filming in a place that's more in the foothills of the Ozarks than in the actual Ozarks. But everything else tried to capture that feeling of being a kid and seeing the expanse of land and then also seeing the magical forest and seeing the, the little stream and creek because we mm-hmm. had one of those uh, on, our, on our land as well. Um, so I tried to capture those things that I, I do remember as a child, the, the different ecologies, if you will, of mm-hmm. the place. Because, you know, uh, Arkansas in the summer, that's that could be some harsh light. You know, that could be, you know, that's not that's not always, a, 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 you know, it, it seems as if there's a little bit of a reverence in terms of how you, you frame this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about... Um, uh, what's your cinematographer's name? Lachlan? I, I met, uh, Lachlan uh, Milne. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, I, some of the collaboration and kind of like what you were thinking about in terms of, you know, the look of this that you wanted. Yeah, we, we definitely wanted to highlight nature. I, I grew up in that place in Arkansas feeling a deep reverence to the land and to nature, and it, it really formed who I am. Um, and I wanted to preserve that. I didn't want the the nature itself to feel harsh and to feel foreboding. Um, if anything, I've I always felt like nature was my way of getting out of the house. Uh, when when mm-hmm. house inside the house, the dynamics of the house felt rough. Mm-hmm. I was out in the woods. Um, and Lachlan and I, we we didn't have much time to film this, so we only had twenty five days, very limited budget, very limited amount of time that we had with Alan Kim because he's uh, he was only seven years old and mm-hmm. he has six hours a day on set. Um, so we, we couldn't chase the light. We couldn't, uh, try to make it as beautiful as possible. We just thought we're going to always take the light and whatever we're getting and accentuate it so that the genuine, genuine atmosphere of the place comes through. So we, we have a lot of moments where we, we'd like that top light, that heavy top, top light of the hot July, August sun and the Ozarks beating down on the characters, because that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And then um, we would try to time some shots in our schedule to happen at sunset. For instance, when Jacob is washing the hands of his daughter, uh, Anne, outside the house. Um, that's one of my favorite scenes. And we really waited um, and timed that scene to take place right at that time of day. And we went out and we let, we only had one take at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so we were intentional with the scheduling, but we also knew that we wanted to shoot it at all times of day. And we, we tried to go with wide angle lenses and um, 
highlight the expanse of the place as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what about the actual home itself, the interior? Um, obviously, I think there's probably a lot of real detail in there, and there's a lot of oh yeah, yeah. And, 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 and but if how you wanted that to feel in your collaboration with your production designer and and and, and Lachlan again here because. You once again, it's that balance, right, between the the feel that you want this to have, and then also a certain realism. But I'm curious because that interior could be tricky, not only to shoot it, yeah. but also to 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 give it the, you know, because you're playing. You know, you walk in, you're supposed to be with the wife, and be like, oh, I don't want to be. You yeah. know, it's like, what are we? What the hell are we doing here? And yet they make it a home, and so it's like that's like a that's a balance you have to find, right? Yeah, we we talked a lot about that. How how to transform a place that's empty into a place that looks lived in and like a home. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yongok Lee, our production designer, she's she's really brilliant, and uh, she was emphasizing to me as we were preparing that a lot of Koreans, when they're poor and uh, they don't have a lot that they're working with, they at least try to um, have some dignity in the way that they make their home neat and clean and. And that that word dignity was something that we threw around a lot on set because we wanted to give dignity to these characters um, and to make them fully human. We didn't want them to be objects of suffering, objects of sympathy. We're just meant to sympathize with them because, you know, they're they're living in squalid conditions. We didn't want anything like that. Um, so Lachlan, Yongok and I, we, we often talked about trying to create a feeling of elegance in the way that things are presented because internally that's the way... We often feel as a family, you you have that self-dignity that you're carrying. Mm-hmm. And my parents certainly did, and I certainly did, uh, a certain feeling of pride. Um, but yeah, the, it was tricky to find the right balance because if we tip it over into it being too beautiful, then it seems like, you know, why why are they complaining so much about this place? You know, they're living in, in heaven. Um, so we were always trying to find the right balance with that. And Lachlan was always saying what's an angle that we can use in this box you know how do you how can you shoot a box in a different <laughs> in a different way and um that that was a big thing that we thought about a lot how to vary the shots up and how to make it feel intimate but yet not to make it feel claustrophobic um so all, you know balance is uh, was another big word that we used all the time we were always looking for the right balance with this um and and it's tough making 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 the right balance in anything is tough. I still wonder like did we do it and um yeah, but I I think those two did an incredible incredible work on this. No, absolutely. There is an element here and I, I think it's probably um an approach as a filmmaker and probably the way you want to work as a filmmaker and you've already you've already evoked Ozu so one can automatically with the question I'm about to ask and already imagine that you're admiring this type of filmmaking. But I am curious about this, especially working with with um, non-professional or first time performers that are younger. The amount of silence and the amount that you can get without dialogue. Now, obviously, certain scenes could be written certain ways so that it's not reliant on dialogue. But it feels to me mm-hmm. that there had beyond however you scripted this, beyond however you intended to film this and, and, and dramatize it. It feels to me like there has, there was um, some real synergy with your cast in terms of finding more silence, finding more mm. ways to express things um, that didn't need to be said. I'm curious if that is something that happened in collaborating with the class cast and in, in shooting um, because it's amazing how much doesn't have to be said in this and is understood. Yeah. I love that. I, I love how you put that. Um, 
definitely the the actors i I fought for instance to get Hanyeri on this film because I've seen her in so many films in Korea and I I saw what she would do with silence um the way that she could communicate so many emotions in just a look and I intentionally uh wrote with uh, wrote very little dialogue in this film um I I think the the kids end up saying more than the the parents somehow um and i i was on the lookout to find actors who could really embody their roles and to perform within those silences and yeti was uh number one for me um and steven yun as well i mean i just feel like what he does in in the films i've seen of his like he he can just be and it it can communicate so much and what i loved about that is um there were scenes that we filmed of either of them explaining more of their backstory mm. and the reasons why they feel certain ways that they do and Harry Yoon the editor and I we would find that we can cut those scenes away because they express so much just in how they look and and how they feel so uh that process of even finding more silence came in the editing as well where we we want to highlight that more and take away the explanations you know i saw this at sundance last year and i'm just coming off sundance this year oh wow and yeah. and you know there's thing I, i'm thinking of this film in that context because your film there's there are quiet there there are a lot of quiet you know intimate films like yours at sundance there's a lot of independent films reaching for this and it feels to me that one of the differentiating things here is is a sense of pace and that sense of how you can hold on to these moments, how you can trust, you know, if, if, to let something like this linger, to let something like this be a little quiet, to be quieter and where those moments are. And I know part of that has to be with the editing, right? And, I, and we're mm-hmm. going to eventually, oh, yes, we're definitely. eventually going to bring in Emil here to talk about music as well. But it's that sense of, of, of how you can hold a moment and when you can hold a moment. And it, it's something where the proof is in the pudding. You did it. But I'm wondering about the work of how to get there and to find that in these quiet moments and how much you can hold it. Is that something that you feel on set? Is it just something how you see it? Um, is it is it something that really is more like it's it, it solved in the editing room? Yeah, I don't find that there's anything that I can do systematically to mm-hmm. figure out what the pace is and that the, the question of pace, which I, I don't think, enough people think about that when it comes to film and how, how that's figured out. Um, a lot of times that's just intuition. And um, for a film like this, you know, we were all in, in Tulsa and in the countryside outside of Tulsa. And that seeps into your bones in a way when you're, when you're uh, figuring out camera movements and uh, trying to portray farming life, there's a certain pace to that. And I think that naturally comes out uh, in the process and in the writing of it, it's it's hard to predict that, really. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you mentioned Harry. Harry was a huge deal in that, in knowing what holds interest and uh, having that constant dialogue with me and insight. And I trusted him so much for that um, and, and relied on him so much for that to guide me. And uh, Emil was very important as a composer. He sent, he sent over five songs to me before we started shooting. Um, and that sent... That gave me the the tone, emotional tone for many of the scenes we were going to film, and that influenced the pace a lot. For instance, he had this wonderful track called Tractor, which 
Um, he was subtly naming uh, mm-hmm. to tell me where to put it in, in the movie. Uh, and um, Yeah, real slick. <laughs> and we listened to that song before we started filming, and that influenced Lachlan and I. We both said, oh, we know how we're going to film this. Yeah. Lachlan said, this is the frame, frame rate we're going to use, and um, this is how we're going to set up the camera. And so it, it was very influential, and uh, yeah. On that note, I'm glad Emil's here. Yeah, we're waking, welcoming your wonderful composer, Emil. Thank you for joining us. Um, Thanks you know, for having me. Hey, you know, let's actually, because I'm very curious about this. You know, what about this idea of these smaller, quieter films? And 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 once again, in this, in in my head, I'm just coming off of Sundance, and there's so many of these stories that I loved. And I'll be honest, a lot of them fall flat on sound and music. Either they they can't they go they go too heavy with it or the or there's a lifelessness to it and 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 the fact that they're not paying attention to both both the sound both the sound design and the soundtrack I, the score I'm curious about like you know that sense of even where music goes and how the role of music is going to play in a quieter intimate film is that something obviously uh, Isaac has got a is got a vision here. Um, but I'm wondering about is that is that even just an issue for you of thinking about how much music, where the music is going to go, and and the role that music is going to play in something that's that's quiet like this? For sure, yeah, it's always a question. It's always an exciting part of the process is trying to find what music role, what what role music is going to play, and where it fits in, and how it can shape a film, but while at the same time not forcing it upon a film and squeezing it in in a way that's not natural or organic. You know, I, with this film, this was the first film that I had scored that I'd written most of the music, most of the themes and melodies before Isaac started shooting. So I, w- I was really writing all from from the script and from an emotional place rather than like seeing what pieces of music are going to go where. And because it's an intimate story and because it's a family story and there's so much, it's so much of these five characters in a small intimate home, from the script stage, it was hard to find to see where the music was going to go. That's why I like there was one thing in the script where there was like you know uh, Jacob's riding the tractor. I was like, oh, I got I got to squeeze this in there with my subtle. <laughs> it's always funny naming cues, you know, <laughs> instrumental music. You're really like you're kind of juicing them in a way. You're trying to find a, a way to like color it. Like if it's if they want something big and boombastic, you you call it like boombastic version five and then it affects the way they hear it <laughs> but uh put but, it put in the name name the track the time code of where it goes yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um no it helps though it helps to you know to to be involved in that stage in the process because i had absorbed his script and i'd i'd fallen in love with his script and i started just writing a bunch of music in the spirit of his script inspired by his script without knowing where the music was going to end up and how it was going to uh, find a home in the film, in the film, you know, and because Isaac was so open and also so, um, y- y- you know, gently steering the ship, but l- allowing me to like write music that wasn't like uh, a cue that had to be thirty-two seconds long, like some of the like that cue tractor. We ended up giving it a, a more poetic title in the end, but I think it's called Garden of Eden. But like that that cue just existed as I'd written it in its full form in the film and the, and the edit had adapted to that piece of music when Harry and Isaac built that scene. So I think that for the, the music has more room to breathe and it has more leg room uh, 
when you work this way, um, which I was, which was a dream for me, you know, to work on this in this way with Isaac. Because I imagine Isaac, there's also this thing where part of our conversation has kind of been bordering on this idea of of a fairy tale of a real story. You know, it's it's you know, and, mm-hmm. and something that is grounded and yet um, has a certain lens of how we're going to see it. And if I, I, you know, I'm wondering if part of the reason, first off directors should be working with composers earlier and they should be doing with this. So part of this is just smart, but I'm wondering if part of the motivation of even starting a collaboration like this before you shoot is, is because of trying to figure out because it feels like Emile's music does is, is a wonderful ingredient of bridging that balance that you're reaching for. And I have to imagine that might've been some of the earlier conversations of the role that you wanted music to play to a certain degree. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I have to credit Emil for this because um, I did not have the foresight to ask him to give me the songs before I was filming. I think I think he just did it, and um, it was it was so incredible to have that and to to drive every day to set listening to his songs and to let that seep in to the to the whole production. That now I see that it has to go this way. You ha- you have to have the music. Um, particularly for a story like this, like as you're mentioning, it's uh, it's meant to be a fable or a, a memory. And to me, music is akin to food somehow. It, it's it's really something that is so personal, brings you joy, and lets you remember things. Um, I, and I, I didn't have too many guidance notes for Emil. I just I think I mentioned I don't want to do the literal Korean American or Korean culture sort of music, and instead. Uh, I think we started to talk about Ravel and um, some mm-hmm. some more like French impressionist music, right? Yeah, that was one early thing. Was you used this beautiful Ravel piece in Marniangabo, and, and I think that's where that conversation started. But I mm-hmm. think it was also it was more just guardrails of of like we know we didn't want it to sound uh, overtly uh, stylistically referencing Korean music. We didn't yeah. want it to. It's also such a deeply American film and it takes place on a farm we didn't want we wanted to uh avoid like overtly american like americana music like i.e harmonicas twangy acoustic guitars like heartland music you know so we kind of and and also we know we didn't want it to be like fit squarely like we didn't want like an 80s synth score either you know so we knew like all the we wanted to be all three of those things but none of those things at the same time but it helps to know, like knowing what you don't want it to sound like, is is just as useful, if not more useful, mm-hmm. than than like saying here I want it to sound like this music mm-hmm. that already exists that you didn't write. You know mm-hmm. that's the harder thing as a composer in a way. Uh, so guardrails are hugely important. There was also one piece of music that still lives in the film. There's one piece of uh, one needle drop in the film. Um, this this beautiful Korean folk song that that they're listening to watching on the, on the TV, uh, Jacob and Monica, that's reminiscent mm. of their, their life in Korea. And I think that that song, although stylistically didn't influence the score, it was, it, it's, it's helpful to know like, oh, whatever I write is gonna live alongside this. And there's something that's haunting about that and something that's also very kind of folky about that. But the main thing, the main challenge was like, what does childhood memory sound like? You know, not, not mm. what does mm. Arkansas sound like? Not just what does a Korean family sound like or the 80s sound like, but like what does childhood memory sound like? Mm-hmm. And yeah. as you go, both were talking about before, like music 
music helps uh, create the 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 experience of when you're watching this film that you're this didn't necessarily happen exactly this way. This is somebody's recollection of this, and there's something more spiritual about it. So, music can mm -hmm. really help with that, with with making something dreamlike or mm -hmm. or feel like a fantasy and feel like a memory. All those things are connected. You know. Was there a piece that? Because um, I, I, I apologize if we were talking lenses and cameras and lights. I'm far better with technically. <laughs> you know, no, in terms no. of, but you know, I I wonder if there was. Um, because there is, I was rewatching them. I watched the first half of the film again this morning, and there are these moments that happen early on. That's like things are tough, and then there's these these moments of um, that have music in them, and that um, you feel the spirit of this family, and it does feel a little. I don't know. I don't know if it's it, it elevates it to this. Uh, I don't want to say fairy tale. I know that's what Isaac Isaac said, but it does, it kind of lifts us into a different place this kind of gentle memory to a certain degree. And I'm wondering, you know, for that type of music, what did you have, you know, was there, is it a particular instrument? Was it a particular approach? Cause I mean, you're talking about all the things you can't do. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, yeah. it becomes like, what are the choices you're going to make? Right. Because. Yeah. That's a great question. I, I think there, I think a lot of it came from just the melodic choices. And like, I, I, I started writing most of this music on piano and voice. So I would sing and play the piano at the mm -hmm. same time and make these sketches and then finding the, like the orchestral element or, or the instrumental choices so sonically to, to, to heighten the, those emotions. That was just a fun exploration. It's, it's, it, and, and I, we, we stumbled across some fun things that helped do that. Like, uh, there's a an '80s uh, Korg synthesizer that kind of has a, a a bit of a theremin-like quality to it that I would double with woodwinds, so that it didn't announce itself as an '80s sound, the synth sound, but it, there was something alien about it, and there was something otherworldly about it that kind of creates that dreamlike feeling you know I'm glad, I'm glad you and said also, that because I was afraid to say the words alien and otherworldly <laughs> I was because oh, oh, I yeah. didn't want to offend but it does there is something there is a because it, it in rewatching it, it does kind of move you to this other kind of like headspace to a certain yeah. degree well that's great to hear yeah. that it's translating that way and that it, that that it's uh you know it's it's always like these types of choices you, you don't set out and say okay we want it to be a fairy tale so we're going to use this instrument mm -hmm. it's like you naturally make these choices in in the in the process of exploration and then later on you figure out why things are working on an emotional level and then you learn out then you learn how to talk about it you know and say mm. but at first <laughs> it wasn't like Isaac and I ever really talked about like like it wasn't a calculated thing like let's try this because this synthesizer is from the 80s and it'll it'll lightly reference the 80s but also feel like a childhood memory because it's like mm. it's like you know but it's just you the instincts pull you that way and then later on you realize why you know and I think that it's it's uh this is such a, a dream job for a composer because it was so wide open stylistically you know it wasn't it wasn't like um uh, there was so much room for exploration you know? isaac i'm curious since you did have these tracks that you had for production we, at what point are you starting in the edit room to start playing with music and how is this music impacting your cutting um and and, and 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 also, I guess to a certain degree, this idea of even when to use music is that something that is 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 in part of the early edits, or is it? Do you really need to get it to a certain point? Yeah. Even before it, it, you it, get it, to it. 
Oh, I, I definitely find that it has to be in there early on. And uh, Harry Yoon, our editor, was already editing the film while I was in production. So that was mm-hmm. another luxury that we had on it. Uh, so that by, by, by the time that I watched it, which is one week after production had wrapped, um, Harry Yoon had an editor's cut, a first editor's cut of the film. He had already put in all of Emile's music. Um, and um, we, we both remarked how rare it is to have an edit in which we have the composer's tracks in there at that mm. stage. Um, and it, it was hugely beneficial because it gives us a sense of the timing of different moments and the emotional arc mm-hmm. uh, of various moments also. Um, and, then, and then, of course, Emil fleshed out a lot more from that point onwards. Um, but it was great. His office was nearby. We would always meet up at this same place and eat some yeah. sandwiches and, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and talk music. In the, in the good old days, yeah, when you could meet up and eat sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. no, what I, a dream. We were it living was, the dream. It was. It was. I mean, I was going to say we didn't know how lucky we had it, but I felt like it was so highly enjoyable that I do feel like we didn't take it for granted. I know, like, you guys would come over and we'd work on on music and, and it, it would give me the sort of structure of trying to get things together for you guys to listen to each week. But I think that, yeah, like when I first watched the film with a lot of my music in it, it was the first time I'd seen the film assembled. I had already seen the dailies, I'd already read the script, I'd already written a lot of this music, but I hadn't seen it all put together. And, I, and I, that was a profound experience, sitting next to Isaac on a couch with Harry in Frogtown, watching the early cut, the very first cut of the film, and just being bulldozed by it. Even though I knew what was going to happen, I was emotionally a wreck watching it and i remember thinking like should i i'm crying there's snot coming out of my nose and everything do i hide this from isaac or do i or do is it good do i play do do i do i lean into it you know what i mean um but it was it was a, a special experience because it's also like you know it's i'd forgot that i was sitting next to the man that had that whose life I was seeing kind of unfold in front of me in this in his childhood unfold in front of me in this film. So it was it was a profound and heady experience, you know. And I think from there there was still a lot of work to do, as far as like I still had to write like twenty five percent of the score. I still had to the other seventy five percent that was written. I had to to conform and and orchestrate and and record the orchestra and there was a lot of work to do but it felt like the starting point with this film was because the music was built in was a it was a whole different thing than any other project I'd worked on before was it clear to you and this is a question for both of you um, you know watching that first cut is it clear to you at that point this movie wants more music this movie wants a little bit less music in that sense that, you know, um, in that sense that maybe the, the, the music is, 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 is having a, a really emotional impact here and it's almost we want to pull it back and not pull back that emotional moment, but actually use that more specifically versus something where it wants to it wants to kind of breathe and fill in a lot of spaces here. Is that is that and I'm not just talking a specific like, oh, this scene needs some and that scene doesn't. But in general, mm-hmm. do you do you both like and having watched that cut have a sense of like, you know, we want we should be doing more you know or we should be pulling back mm. i i don't think uh, on, oh i'm sorry Emil. I, no 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 go ahead 
Yeah, on my end, I, d- I didn't uh, feel like there was anything major that we were thinking more in terms of tweaks and timing uh, and, and not in on that macro level. I don't think that we ever thought we need more or less. I think it was more how do we get all these parts to fit mm-hmm. and how do we mm-hmm. get more uh, tracks replaced with, right. um, you know, we, we did have some temp stuff um, that was actually Emile's music. We used a lot of Emile's music to temp as well from Last Black Man. Mm-hmm of San Francisco. Um, yeah. That was the most stressful part for me was, was the, was the temp music, but it was also cool to see that music live in another film mm-hmm. and see what, you know, what was working, what wasn't working. But yeah, I think to, to Isaac's point, yeah, it was more about like, I think that there wasn't some overwhelming thing of like, Oh, we need a lot to get a lot bigger overall, or we need to get a lot smaller overall. It was more like, this is it's such an intimate story, but emotionally it's so sweeping. It's such a, a, a an epic uh, emotionally, but it's an intimate story. So there's a balance where you want to lean into those big moments musically, sparingly. You don't want to you don't want to have it be you don't want to overplay your hand in that department. Um, and I think that we were all very much in tune, like in calibrated on that, you know. Yeah. And there was a lot, a huge amount of trust, mutual trust between Isaac and I of of you know, I, he trusted me to, to in, on the writing side, and I trusted him as far as the way he, where, where were we using the music? How were we using the music? I felt like there was always somebody at at the wheel, and it was not like um, that part of it was was in no way daunting, you know, as it sometimes can be. Like, how big does the music get, or how small does it get? You know, you you kept telling us to turn it up. No. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's the issue is louder, not more louder. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Always. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, he he says he's kidding, but it's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. I let, let's leave it here. I, I'm wondering if you guys have a favorite moment in terms of the the way that the music was working in this. Isaac, we'll start with you in terms of. Uh, where the score and, 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 and what your film were really kind of came together in a magical way. Is there a moment that you really think of with that? You can't, you can't uh, I, I of- always, I always think of that, that ending with, uh, I don't know if, you know, the big ending, I should say, mm-hmm. in case there are people who haven't seen it, um, with where the emotions and the events of this farming life kind of come to its climax. Um, what Emil wrote was in some ways counterintuitive to that because it's um, it's not like trying to sell us this huge emotion, but it's really keeping things more on a delicate level, I feel. Uh, and when I watched the image set to that music, it was such a perfect marriage. Um, and I remember it moving me a great deal as I watched it um, and, and just feeling like how wonderful that insight was that Emil had that the music would work in that way if, if we did it that way to not do it so literal but to kind of counterpoint it in some way I, I don't know if I'm saying it right Emil but no um, th- that was th- remarkable to a, me oh thanks yeah that that's exactly yeah that's exactly right I think that it was exciting to see that 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 translate and that land in that way with the cut because I imagine that it that it that it could but the way that you, you guys pieced it together it felt like that was a, uh, one of those moments where the I never get this expression right but the sum is greater than the the parts <laughs> you know that the, the, the result is better than the sum of its parts I won't I won't butcher it any further but you know what I mean 
Um, I now have lost the expression in my head. I, I, I yeah, used to sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I rewrote it. I, I, I over, sorry. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, that's, I guess for me, that scene would be one. And then, and then I would say the, the qu- quieter moment in the film musically is just the, the, I also don't know. It's, I'm also choosing something towards the very end, but the actual very end of the film, the way that the last cue in the film, and the 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 that moment when the image that we're left with and the piece of music that we're left with, the marriage of those two things, and when the screen goes to black, there's a bit of a breath. The way there's like a a note that kind of hangs over, and then it and then it lands, and there's a breath, and the way that that was pieced together. Um, was was really moving to me, and I'm really proud. That's my I think my favorite moment of the film mm-hmm. because it because it's it's the cadence and it's the it's this final breath of the film and 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 I wrote that piece of music initially for another another scene and and Harry and Isaac had placed it there in a way that was completely f- exciting and unexpected to me. And yeah, I credit Harry for that. He really figured that out. Yeah, yeah that was that was. That that was a, a an amazing thing to see unfold. When you see it all come together, you know it seems like a cliche to choose the very last scene as your favorite scene, but it was for me the it's the one that gets me the most that that moment. You know, I think because it's the culmination of the entire film. You know, uh, emotionally boiled down to this one very small moment. You know, I I love talking. You know, the, I love talking about the craft of smaller films like this because. It often gets ignored because it's not, you know, it sometimes it doesn't smack you on the front of the head. But the, every to pull something like this off, Isaac, it's just gotta from the music to to the to the cinematography to it's just it's every step here. It's just really beautiful for a twenty-five day shoot film. You know, even if you got great people, they've got a vision. It's just to pull something like this off is um, is a remarkable piece of work. Um, and I agree with Emil, it's got to start with a vision, that. but I mean, a lot of visions could die, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so it's it's a balancing act. And this this is one of the more uh, perfectly balanced films I've seen in, in quite some time. So, uh, so got- I appreciate it. And I, I do want to just keep on highlighting. I'm, I'm so glad you have Emil on this program because um, it's really the people um, who, who let that become possible and real. And um, I mean, now nowadays i'm always going to associate my childhood memories with emil's music and oh, that's such a man. gift yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's he's smooth this one he's making me cry over here. um were your parents were your parents like we couldn't it would were your parents wanting some more traditional music though isaac were they were they wanted uh oh they loved the music <laughs> yeah. they, my mom my mom doesn't know how to use spotify so she made me put it on a usb drive <laughs> so loaded up in her minivan maybe maybe a milk and burner a cd <laughs> i'll work on it <laughs> all right all right thank you right, both right on it thanks so much chris